Well, I'm going to ask the worship. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> if you have Exodus 3, Exodus chapter 3, you can follow along on the U version uh, under uh, more on the bottom. Click on events and uh, Cornerstone should be one of the first churches that pop We are in uh, the book of Exodus, and last week we uh, started by talking about how uh, the nation of Israel just seemed to be thriving. They uh, started out with 70 people going to Egypt at the end of Genesis, and now we find that their numbers have grown and they've been fruitful and multiplied, and we see this as this promise that's been fulfilled by God that, you know, he told Abraham... I'm going to make you into a nation. You're going to be blessed. Your descendants are going to be numerous. But at the same time, there's a new Pharaoh. And this new Pharaoh, uh, it says that to him, Joseph meant nothing. And it could have been that he just never knew who Joseph was. But given the history of Egypt, it's more likely that he just decided to ignore everything that Joseph had done. And he says, hey, these people are, are starting to outnumber us. They're starting to become so numerous um, remember, they had kind of been overtaken by a group of people a generation before. And so they're worried. They're thinking, what's going to happen if they become so numerous? They could join our enemies and they could fight against us and they could flee. And so they put the people into slavery. And even in putting them in slavery, they're fruitful and they're multiplying. So they're increasing, increasing the suffering that these people are going through. And so finally the Pharaoh says, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the, any babies that are born that are male, we're going to have them killed. The girls can live, but boys have to be executed. And there's these two midwives who fear the Lord, and they say, we're not, we're not going to do that. And so what do they do? They get to the house, and oh, it's too late. They've already given birth. These uh, Hebrew women, they're tougher than the... Uh, the Egyptian women, they give birth quickly, and they had already given birth by the time they got here, and they hit them. What, we, what are we supposed to do? And God blessed them because of this. God gave them families, and they continued to be fruitful, multiply, but let it go. And so he said, here's what I want everybody to do. Any baby boys that are born are to be tossed into the Nile. And so it goes that in one of these cases, there's this baby that's born to a Levite woman, uh, says that he was a fine child and she hit him for three months but it finally got to a point where she couldn't hide him any longer and so she placed this baby boy in a basket and put him out kind of in the, the reeds uh, in the Nile, the bank of the Nile and it just so happens that one of Pharaoh's daughters go out or goes out to the Nile to bathe and they're walking along the river bank and they see a basket and so they go over there and they see that there's this baby boy crying in this basket. And she says, hey, this is one of those Hebrew babies. And just so happened that this baby's sister had been watching what was going on. And she goes over and says, hey, do you want, her, or do you want him to go to one of these Hebrew women to take care of? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yeah, go ahead. And one day when he's older, return him to me and... That's exactly what happened. It says when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son and she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. And later, Moses has grown up and he goes out to 
his people are and where they're working and where they're going through this slavery. And he sees this Egyptian beating on one of his people. And he makes sure there's no one around. And he kills this Egyptian and he hides him in the sand. Next day he goes out and he sees these two uh, Hebrews fighting. And he asks, well, why are you fighting with each other? You already have enough work fighting with each other. And they say, who are you to say anything? Are you going to kill us just like you killed that Egyptian? And this freaks him out. Oh, man, that word spread or somehow people know. So he goes to Midian to flee from Pharaoh. And there just happens to be at this time a, a priest of Midian named Ruel. Him and his daughters are out there and these shepherds come and drive them away. And... Moses goes and he drives them away and helps these people. They bring them back and they actually, Moses agrees to stay with this man and his daughter Zipporah ends up becoming uh, Moses' wife. And that leads us to where we are this morning in Exodus chapter 3. And we saw this video from one of my favorite movies of all time. And it's a familiar story, isn't it? Like we've, grown, we've heard so much about Moses at the burning bush. We've, we've seen this story played out in several different ways in several different forms of media. We've heard this story in Bible school and in children's church our whole life. We, we know this story. But I just love familiar stories because it seems like it's the familiar stories that we often forget we get so caught up in the, the story itself, sometimes we miss the things that's happening inside the story. And I think, to venture a guess, many of us can relate to that scene. Many of us can relate to Moses and what he's going through in that moment because so often we are a lot like Moses when it comes to coming and saying, hey, I've got this task, this, this purpose, this mission, this ministry for you. We respond in a lot of cases the same way the Moses responds. And so we're going to talk about how Moses responds this morning. And so we're going to start in uh, verses 1 through 6 in, in Exodus chapter 3. And it says this. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and set, or see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called, him, or called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And so here we see the backdrop to the, the call on Moses. We see that Moses was out tending the flock of Jethro, his father. Interesting here, we see change between chapter 2 and chapter 3. In chapter 2, we see that his name was Ruel. Here we See, his name is Jethro. This could be just a case that he had two different names that he went by, or it could be a case of him changing his name because he feels like his son-in-law being of Egyptian royalty is something of prestige to him. 
Matter of fact, the name Jethro does mean abundance or superiority or excellence. So he could have been saying, well, hey, I've got some Egyptian royalty in my family. This is time for a name change. Could be. Could be. But we see that Moses here is now a nomadic sheep herder, which means he would go from place to place with his flock. We see that he happens to be at Mount Horeb. Horeb is not actually the name of the mountain. Horeb is a of mountains with the peak where God appearing would be Mount Sinai and is referred to here as the mountain of God. And this mountain will play a big part in the history of Moses and the Israelites. Later on, Moses will lead the people back here to worship and in Exodus 20, it is here where we will see God's, or where they will see God's presence, and Moses will receive the Ten Commandments. And so this is a very important place. And while he's here, he comes across a burning bush. We see that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from a bush. Now, uh, we see this vision here, the God in the flame, the, the angel of the Lord this is believed to be what is known as a theophany. A theophany, it just simply means God in tangible form. God taking the form of something that can be seen, that we can understand. We see this in Genesis a few times. In Genesis 12, a theophany case, you know, appearing before Abraham. In Genesis 18, again to Abraham, this time with two angels, right before Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with God. And they believe that to be a theophany. But they also say in Genesis 18 and 32, this could be a Christophany. And a Christophany is an appearance of Christ in a different form before he was born in human flesh. But this case appears to be a theophany. And he sees this book with flames of fire. God's presence is so often symbolized as fire. So many times in the Old Testament, you see this idea of fire showing God's presence. And God calls out to Moses and he tells him not to go any closer. He tells him to take off his sandals because the ground he stands is holy. We see something similar with Joshua. Joshua 5.15, the commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. You see, it wasn't the ground in itself that was holy. The dirt laying on the ground, it wasn't that in itself that was holy. No, it's the presence of God that makes the ground holy. Just as a building does not make a church, it's the people within the building that makes the church. It's the presence of God that makes something holy. And God tells him who he is. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the patriarch of the nation of Israel. And upon hearing this, he covers his face. Why does he cover his face? Well, a little later in Exodus, we read in Exodus thirty three twenty, but he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. No one was able to see the face of God and live to tell about it. And that's what we see here. He covers his face. And what's so interesting here is this is the first written occurrence of God directly speaking to someone over the past 400 years of the history of Israel up to this point. Later on, we're going to see another 400 years of silence before an angel speaks to John the Baptist about a coming Messiah, and it'll tell him to make way for the Lord. 
And so now we have the backdrop to Moses' calling, and this is what happens in verses 7 through 10. It says, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Here's the reason why he appears to him. He's calling Moses to go to his people. We see this come about in Exodus chapter 2, 23 through 25, and it says, During the long period the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God's heard the cry of his people, and he's concerned for their welfare. He wants to bring them out of Egypt. He wants to bring them out of slavery, bring them out of the hands of the Egyptian, and he wants to bring them to a land that had been promised all the way back to Abraham. He wants to bring them into this promised land. And in verse 8, we see where God says that he came down. He came down. This is an idiom that describes God's divine intervention. And we'll see this more in full effect when we talk about the plagues. This divine intervention. God has seen the cries, or he's heard the cries. He's seen the despair of his people. And so what is he going to do? He's going to come down. He's going to divine, or have some divine intervention here. And he's going to take them out of this land, and he's going to take them to a better land, a land of milk and honey. What does that mean, milk and honey? Well, this signifies the agricultural prosperity. Think about this for a second. A land of milk compared to a desert what sounds better i think a land of milk and honey this prosperity compared to the desert and look even though there's six other nations right now that's occupying it's going to be easy but guess what this is going to be the land that they would inherit and so how is moses going to respond to this he's probably going to say okay i'm ready i'm ready to go Well, in verses 11 through 14, it says this. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So we see here the beginning of Moses' response to God. And the first thing he does is he asks a question. And he asks a series of questions in this text and makes a series of statements. And the first one that he asks is this, who am I? Who am I? Moses asked God, who am I to go before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead these people out of the hands of Egypt? It's overwhelming to him, the idea of this. And he feels like he's just not the right person. He's inadequate. But yet God promises him two things. I'm with you. I will be with you. 
And not only will I be with you, but you're going to have success. I'm going to bring people out. You're going to bring them back here and they will worship me on this mountain. You will have success in this. Reminds me of Romans 8.31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is with us, if God is on our side, then who can be against us? And then Moses asked, who do I tell them sent me? I'll tell them, but who do I tell them? I, I don't have authority. I don't have the authority to say anything. And God says, here's what I want you to tell them. I am who I am sent you. Tell them I am sent you. And as I was reading commentaries this week, I read this quote from Bible Ref, and, and I love what it says. It's, the way they describe this verse is just amazing. It says this, Even in Hebrew, this is a statement which is not merely expressed as a name or a word or a description. This is a poetic expression of God's very nature. The statement carries a sense of necessity, simplicity, and absoluteness. In using this particular phrasing, God identifies himself as the self-existent one, the eternal, unique, uncreated God. God just is. He is the ultimate truth, the only necessary being, the beginning and end, the first cause. This phrase, I am, that's who God is. I am everything that makes God who he is, his personality, his characteristics, his traits, everything about God can be summed up as I am. And I can't help but think that this is one way that we're a lot like Moses, isn't it? I mean, be honest. How often have you asked, I, who, who am I that you would call me to do anything for you, God, I'm, I'm this broken, sinful person. Who am I? We ask that question so often, don't we? And I think it, it, when we say that, who am I, it really means a couple of things. It really means us saying, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I'm, I'm no one special. I have failed so many times. I, I, I'm not the one to do this. That's what we mean when we ask, who am I? And I get it. I get it. I am a shy, shy person. I am my core. And let's be honest, I'll be honest with you about something. I'll tell you something that very few people in this room know. I struggle so much with self-esteem. So much I struggle with self-esteem. And I've asked myself so many times, God, who would call me to do anything for you? Who am I that I would be able to stand in front of people and share your word? God, who am I? I'm nothing. And you meditate. And I've asked God several times, who am I? Maybe you've asked God several times, who am I? But when I get to, when I get to thinking that, this, I think of not just the fact that God is with us, but I come in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 through 29, it says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the wise things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast 
before him. So who am I? Who are you? Children of God. And if we are children of God, then we are servants of our heavenly father. That's who we are. That's who we are. And so he asks, who am I? And he continues on in verses 15 through 22. Says God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, the, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is the name, or this is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel, and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel went, or the elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. And so here... He's kind of recapping everything that he's already told Moses. Here's what I want you to Elders of Israel. This is the first time that we see that mentioned the, the elders of Israel. These were people that appear to have started serving the nation of Israel while they were still in slavery. And we actually see this phrase used eight times in the book of Exodus and 14 times in total in the Torah. And God tells them that need to do. You are to take them and you're to go on this three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices. Notice nothing about them returning from their three-day journey because God knows that Pharaoh is not going to let them go. We see this divine knowledge played out in Genesis or Exodus chapter 3. Notice earlier when he tells Moses, hey, you're going to go and you're going to uh, lead my people out of Egypt. He never tells him that he's going to take them into the promised land. He says they will go to the promised land. He never tells them that it's going to be him who takes them. Here he says, guess what? You're going to go and ask, and Pharaoh is not going to let you go. No, it's going to take an act of God. It's going to take a miracle to let, or to get Pharaoh to let you guys go. And so he says he's going to stretch out his hand and strike them with what will be the plagues. That's just terrifying, is it not? The thought of God sin, like stretching out his hand against us. As a matter of fact, listen to some of the other times. In Jeremiah 6.12, it says, Their houses will be turned over to others together with their fields and their wives when I stretch out my hand against those who live in the land, declares the Lord. Ezekiel 6.14, it says, And I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land a desolate waste from the desert to Diblah. Wherever they live, then they will know that I am the Lord. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priest. So you want to make sure that you stay on. You don't want to be on the side of God where I'm going to have to you know, put my hand out against you guys, striking. That is terrifying. 
But here, God promises that not only will they leave Egypt, but on that day, they will get whatever they want from the Egyptians. And wear the finest clothing the day that they leave Egypt. It makes sense. They're going to give them whatever they want. God is going to give them all the Egyptians because the Egyptians know after the plagues that to continue to mean the wrath of God is going to come against them. And so they're going to end up taking whatever they want from the Egyptians. And so now Moses surely with this promise is going to say, okay, you're right. God, I'm going to trust you. You know, I just got to lean on you. All right, God, we're, we're good. I'm going to go. This is what it says in Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. It says, Moses answered, What if they not, do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and turned it back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, or this, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. And so we see here now Moses asks this next question. What if... What if, what if they just don't believe me? They don't listen to me. What, what do I do? What, what if? And so God says, here's what I'm going to do. First, take that staff and throw it on the ground. And he throws it on the ground and what happens? It, it turns into a snake and he ran from it. And then the Lord told him to reach out and take it by the tail. And so he does and it turns back into a staff. Now, let's be honest. How many of you, if you dropped this staff on the ground and it became a snake, how many of you would go back and pick it up by the Not, not very many of us, if we're being honest. Some of you might oh, yeah, snake's no big deal. You know, I don't mind them, but, you know, so I don't think I would try to pick one up. And he runs from it, and he says, okay, now pick it up by the tail, and he does, and it turns back into a staff. If that's not enough, he Next, put your hand into your cloak. And he puts his hand in the cloak and he pulls it out and his hand has become white as snow from leprosy. And he puts it back in and he pulls it back out and it's normal. And he says, hey, they're going to believe, if they don't believe the first one, then surely they'll believe the second one. But even if they don't believe those two things, you're going to take water from the Nile, pour it on the ground and it will become like blood. It just kind of shows the world we live in, right? We've got to see to believe that human nature. Like, I've got to see it to believe. And even sometimes when we see it, we still don't believe. But listen to what it says in Exodus chapter 4, 30 through 31. It says, And Aaron told them everything the Lord said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. They would see these things, and they would believe. Later, they would have an issue a little bit with their faith, but... They believe. 
God's going to give them these things to show, hey, these are miraculous things to prove that what I say is true. You see, God often uses miracles to validate his message or his messengers. We see it throughout scripture over and over and over again. And yet here I think again is another way that we relate to Moses, right? It's the what ifs. It's the what ifs. The, the what if they don't want to listen to me? What if they don't believe what I say offends them? Maybe I should just keep to myself. And we spend so much time being afraid of the what ifs. We spend so much time being afraid of the what ifs that we remain silent and we choose not to serve. We're so scared, we're so timid because of the the what ifs. How do people respond? What What do people say? What will people think? What will people do? But we need to remember the words that Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For the Spirit of God, for the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but He gives us power, love, and self-discipline. We have a Spirit that gives us power, not fear, not timidity. We have a Spirit that gives us power and boldness. You see, we can't control the response of those who are around us. We can tell people good news, but we can't, we can't make whether we choose to serve and speak or let the what-ifs win. We get to choose. Moses continues in verse 10. It says, Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes... Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? No, go. I will help you speak, and you will teach, or I will teach you what to say. Here's a statement now that Moses makes, and really, what it comes down to is that I'm qualified. Moses continues to challenge his calling by he's not a very good speaker. Surely, there's somebody better at speaking than me. I mean, I'm, I'm slow of tongue. My speech isn't the greatest. I'm not the greatest communicator. Um, what you're to say. You know, God is the one who can give them the ability to talk or to see or take things away. And I tend to think that out of all of these questions, this is the one we relate to most, isn't it? Statement. This is one of the ones we relate to most. You know, his statement parallels a statement that a lot of us make. I'm just not qualified. I, I'm not a good speaker. I didn't go to Bible I'm not gifted enough to do what God has told me to do. We've said this at some point in our lives, right? I'm just not qualified. There's smarter, more knowledgeable people who are, are better at this than me. There's, there's probably somebody that can do this much better than me who's more qualified. There's an old saying, you've probably heard it, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the call. And that's what he does. And there's, there's these things that I've heard often. I'm not gifted enough to serve him. I'm not gifted. I don't, I don't have the gifts to do ministry. I don't have the gifts to serve in his kingdom. I'm just not gifted. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. 
If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Paul says something similar in Romans 12, 6 through 8. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is given, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. We all have gifts. You may not understand right now what your gift is. There's various ways to to do that. One, pray about it. There's gift assessments that you can take. Talk with people around. Talk to your brothers and sisters. Help. Maybe they can help you see that gift. But we all have a gift to serve him. And then the other thing I've heard said, I, I just don't know what to say. I don't know what to say to somebody. What, what do I tell them? Well, I always tell people, if you don't know what to say, just tell them your story. Tell them your story. Tell them what God has done in your life. But here's the other thing. Jesus says this in Mark thirteen eleven. When talking about being arrested and being brought before trial, he says this, Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Pray that the Holy Spirit would give you the words to speak. And here's another thing. You can always be prepared. You can always study. Always pick up your Bible. You can always read. You can always study. You can always, uh, you know, listen to podcasts. Listen to things that will help you uh, communicate. What it says in First Peter three fourteen through fifteen. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. You can be prepared when you don't know what to say. Maybe you don't right now, but you can study, you can read, you can prepare. And these are on top of things that I've heard, such as I'm not smart enough, creative enough, so on and so forth. But I like these words from Martin Luther King Jr. who said, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. We have to stop saying, I'm not qualified because God has given us what we need. More on that here in a minute. We go into verses 13 to 17. It says, But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. And the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help, you bo- I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take the staff in your hand so that you can perform the sights with it, the signs with it. And so here is this last statement that he makes, statement, question. He says, is there no one else? Is there no one else to do this? Moses is now asking God, send someone else, anybody else. There has to be someone else. I am not the right guy. I am not the right person for this. And that makes God angry, understandably so, over and over and over again. God is saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you words. I'm going to give you signs. I'm give you all of these things and yet he's saying no send someone else 
But here we see the grace of God displayed from God could have handled it any other way and been justified in whatever he decided to do to Moses. But he tells Moses that, okay, then I'll get Aaron and Aaron's going to speak for you. Moses would carry the staff and he'll perform the, the signs that are going to take place with the staff. He would be the leader while Aaron was going to be the mouthpiece. God, again, is going to what he needs. And this is the same question that we've said, I believe. Is there no one else? I think we've probably muttered this more times than we care to admit. God, there's got to be somebody else. God, I hear what you're telling me to do. I feel this calling based on my life. I get it. I understand it. There's got to be somebody else. There's got to be anybody else. Or we say, if I just don't do anything, God will find somebody else anyway. God will use somebody else anyway. I don't need to, to worry about it. If I choose not to, God's always going to find somebody else. And we kind of look at Moses from time to time as in, in sort of things, and he's going to be with you, and he's going to give you the words, and yet you're refusing to serve him, and the exact same thing. We just refuse to do what God is calling us to do. We run away from his calling so many times. Sometimes it's out of comfort. Sometimes it's out of fear. But no matter what it is, or anybody else, is there somebody else? There's got to be somebody else. And what do we see God do here? I'm going to give you the tools to do what it is I've asked you to do. I'm going to give you all the things that you need. And that's where I want us to land this morning with this thought. God gives us everything we need to serve him. God gives us everything we need to serve The gifts that we need, the word that we need, everything that we need to serve him, to live for him. God has given those things to us. And maybe you're thinking, examples please. What has he given? to do the things that we need to do. Well, I've got a few. There's many. Here's a few. There's the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. We are blessed beyond measure because we have the Holy Spirit in our lives. If we have given our life to Him, we have received the Holy Spirit. It is so underrated. I could say about the Holy Spirit. I just love the work that the Holy Spirit does. And what are those things? What are the things that the Holy Spirit does? Again, it's new. There's so many things that the Holy Spirit does. Here's a few things. For starters, he gives us power. He gives us power. He gives us the power we need to do the task that he gives us. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He tells the disciples, the apostles, wherever you go, you're going to have power. The Holy Spirit's going to give you power and you're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea to the ends of the earth, proclaiming the gospel. The Holy Spirit gives the same power that he gave the apostles. What else does he do? He, he guides us in the truth so that we can proclaim the truth. He guides us in the truth so that we can proclaim the truth. This spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He guides us in truth so that we can communicate the truth. 
And what else does he do? He helps us to understand the word of God. How can we proclaim the word if we do not understand the word? And so the Holy Spirit helps us to understand his word. John fourteen twenty six. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. What else has God given us? Well, he's given us his word. What does God give to Moses? The words to speak over and over. I'll give you the words. I'll give you the words. I'll give you the words. All you have to do is just tell them exactly what I'm telling you. You don't have to try anything on your own. All you have to do is tell them exactly what I told you. And he has given his word. We have the scriptures on our phone and, you know, in our phone, the physical Bible. We God's word had access for us all the time. Second Timothy three sixteen through seventeen reminds us all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Hebrews four twelve says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and have the Holy Spirit, we have his word. And one thing that he gave Moses is another thing he gives us, his promises. His promises, he's promised us. What promises he's given us? He promises that if we seek him, we will find him. Deuteronomy 29, but if from your heart with all your soul. He's promised us comfort in our trials. Sometimes following him is going to be very difficult and 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. He promises to supply our needs. Keyword, needs. Philippians four nineteen, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And there are so many other promises. We can read through Scripture and find promise after promise after promise after promise that God has given us. So many promises. Promises galore and given. And I like what it says in Second Corinthians. No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Moses asked all these questions and he didn't want to do what God asked him to do rather than trusting in the Lord's love and power and greatness. And yet the Lord redeems him and uses him. And God does the same thing for us. God gives us everything we need to serve him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they're coming up, I want us to think about something real quick with Moses. You see, I think that it's very likely that the reason Moses was the way he was, looking back at his past, he looks back at what happened with this Egyptian man. This he looks at this mistake he's made, and because of this, he he feels as though he has nothing to offer, nothing in him that makes him right for the job. And I think it leads me to say one thing that God, one other thing that God has provided to us. You see, how often do we look back at our life and we look at our and we look at our past and we say our past is simply too big for us to be used by God. Our past is too big. There's too many mistakes, too many sins. There's too many things that we've done wrong. Moses spent so much time looking back at what he had done wrong. He became so infatuated with it that he couldn't allow himself to be used by God. 
And we do the same thing. But God has provided this, his son. Of all the things that God has given to us, nothing is greater than this. He has given us son who came, who lived, who died, who rose again for us so that we can be forgiven, so that our past mistakes, those past things, those were gone and buried. We can be you to God. And Jesus said it this way in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than that to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that's exactly what Jesus laid down his life for us so that we can be forgiven. And maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling with these same questions, these same feelings, these thoughts that Moses had. I am just too inadequate. I'm too inadequate to do what you have called me to do. I'm not qualified to do what you've called me to do. I have got so much sin in my life. I've got so much of a passage. There's just no way. But here's the thing. We can receive the same grace. The same grace. And we have forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning, you've never given your life to him, what better time than today? Give your life to him. Accept and believe him. Take that Holy Spirit, his word, his promises. Live for him, serve him. If you've never done that on your connect cards and the chairs around you, you can write it down. I'd love to talk with you. Or maybe you want to talk with me this morning. I'd love to talk with you. Or maybe you're here this morning and we've just been living by these same things. Maybe so often we say, who am I? I get it. I've said it myself. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Maybe it's the what ifs. Maybe the what ifs are keeping us from being the kind of servants that God has called us to. Maybe we're so terrified of what people are going to say or think or feel by what we do that it scares us off. It's time to stop being timid and fearful. We have a spirit that gives us power and boldness. Maybe we feel like we're just not qualified. There's nothing about me that makes me worthy of doing this. I'm not the smartest. I'm not the most educated. There's not whatever the excuses are that we make for why we say we're not qualified. We have a spirit in us that has qualified us to allow us to share his word and to serve him. But please do not get stuck or caught in the sin someone else because God can use us. So if you're here this morning and you have a decision to make or you just need to spend some time in prayer, please do so as we stand and we sing.